Greetings, everyone. I'm excited for a special edition of the podcast today. Normally talk to founders, but today we are going to talk about the M&A world in software. I've got Jim Williams on the show again. Jim, welcome. Thanks, Ben. It's it's great to be here. And for those who don't, don't know me, I am Jim Williams. I'm a managing director with TLC Advisors. We are a 70-person national boutique investment banking firm. We have offices in New York and Denver, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. I, I sit in our Denver office and I help lead our technology investment banking efforts. We primarily focus on advising founders and entrepreneurs on M&A and capital raise transactions in the middle market and thrilled to be here again and, and share some of our views on what we're seeing in the market and living on a day-to-day -day basis. So happy to field your questions, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Jim, for coming on. So I had Jim on in, I think, the April timeframe of this year, which was 2023, and just the, st the status of software M&A. You know, and, and back then, Jim, is really unknown, right? Just not yeah. sure how 2023 is going to play out. Now, we're recording this early November. So, you know, things have probably changed since April. So just want to catch up the, the SaaS community, the founder community on the latest in software M&A. So, Jim, yeah, let's kick this off. Let's talk macro level first. So yeah. what are we seeing from a high level on deal volume? Has deal volume picked up from earlier in the year? Is it the same? What are we seeing there? You know, what we've seen is I think we've reached a new normal, a new level of stability, actually. So when we spoke the first time, Ben, it was really murky where things were going. At that point, I think we'd had uh, close to six straight quarters of declining deal volume. We didn't know when that was going to bottom. And coincidentally or not, it's really leveled out. So we're no longer seeing the steep quarter over quarter to call it Q3 21 to Q4 of 22. So for the last four quarters, you know, a year now, we've been really consistent on the deal volume front, anywhere from kind of 220 to 225 deals every single quarter. If you think about where we were on the peak, Ben, mm -hmm. we were at like 375 deals a quarter. So that means the new normal is kind of like 40% down from when it was really frothy. And just for folks, you know, coming off 2021 is, is an anomaly. So if you think back maybe to 2019, where things were sort of more steady state, U.S. software M&A, as we tracked, it was averaging kind of like 260 deals a quarter. So we're still down a little bit from where we were prior to recent market volatility and interest rate hikes. But I think for us, what we look for is some stability in that band and then going, and we can talk about this a little bit later, you know, where do we think that goes in future from where we are today? But things have, things have calmed down. I think people understand the market a little bit better, and that's getting into maybe some stability and deal flow. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. I know early in the year, it was just like, we didn't know how 2023 is going to play yeah, out. Obviously, exactly. 2021 was a crazy year, but now, like you said, kind of a new normal, but really now we're not seeing those downward trends. Now we've, you've, yes. it seems like we've gotten comfortable just where things are at, you know, so yeah, less exactly. unknowns. Yeah. And then yeah. of course, a topic that's on every founder's mind, valuations. Yeah. You know, we saw like tightening of big changes since 2021. Yeah. And have we stabilized? Is it still kind of all over the place? Tell us about what we're seeing value valuations right now. Yeah. So the last time we spoke, we we covered this as well. And we have also seen stability on the valuation front. So for the benefit of people who um didn't see the last uh, discussion we had. So I would characterize this as valuations coming back down to more historical norms, Ben. So in call it Q3 and uh, 21 and really the 21 year, we were seeing median M&A valuations at kind of eight to nine times ARR. And uh, so really, if you think about how many deals that's covering, and that's across hundreds of deals to have the median at eight to nine times is a really strong market. We've seen that come down to a more kind of normalized range of around five times. That trend has remained relatively consistent. And again, remember these are data points across hundreds of deals. So there are many deals that happen above five times, many deals that happen below five times, but it has stabilized, which I think is, we see it in the volume, we're seeing it in valuations, which I think is, again, getting back to at least for now a new normal of how people are behaving in this rate environment. And as you know, we're living every day, the world keeps getting in its own way. 
at a macro level. So where we've seen this play out on the public company side, Ben, because we, you know, these are, I'm talking kind of private M&A transactions as well as recorded public M&A transactions. You know, our, our public companies, and we track all sorts of different indices, um, they're largely hovering around where they were about a year ago. So for example, in Q3 of 22, We've got a SaaS index that we track, which is 70 or 80 public SaaS companies. I was trading, you know, at 5.6 times a year ago, and now it's trading at 5.7 times, mm -hmm. right? So contrast those numbers back to where we were in kind of like early 21 and 2020, that same bucket was trading at, at like 17 times, right? So we've definitely come off of that. But that five to six times number is much more in line with where things have been historically. And it's been pretty consistent now for a while. So again, stability there at more normalized levels. Okay. Okay. So stability, normalized, maybe roughly 5X ARR. And then I know earlier this year, right, you know, in 2021, we're coming off those highs and high valuations, and there was a big discrepancy in what founders were thinking they could get for M&A multiples versus yep. what buyers were willing to offer. And we call that that, that bid-ass spread. Yep. And there was a difference in expectations. Now, have we closed the gap since earlier in the year, or do we still see a little tug of war on what founders want versus buyers and investors? Yeah, there, you know, there's always a little bit ask spread. So there's still a little tug, tug of war, but I think we would say that spread is, it's tightening, Ben. And part of that is, I think folks who are out in market now are, are maybe, they've rationalized their valuation expectations, maybe a little more than folks who continue to wait to go to market, which is a, a very sort of logical thing to do. I mean, if, if multiples right now aren't going to support your desired exit valuation, then a lot of people are saying, well, I've got a great business. I'll just continue to grow into my valuation expectations and maybe wait into 2024, 2025 to go to market. So the folks that are in market, I think most of those owners, as well as sponsor-backed businesses, understand the current valuation dynamics and are comfortable um, there. So I think that facilitates deals getting done. What we, what we do continue to see, and I think this will persist, is we're seeing structure remain in deals. And what I what I mean by that is we're seeing things like earnouts being proposed more frequently. We're seeing um, strategic buyers require that sellers roll over into a combined entity more often. So take some consideration not in cash. And we're seeing things like seller notes be proposed more often as well. Now that doesn't mean those get into every single deal. Ben, there's still plenty of all cash deals getting done, but the components of consideration in transactions began to shift um, a year or so ago as people were getting creative on not only how to finance transactions, but how to meet people, meet sellers in particular, where they are on valuation expectations. And that that is absolutely still showing up in deals. So, and I would, frankly, I would expect that to continue for a bit, a bit longer and, and every deal's different and the dynamics of the buyer in every deal are different, but certainly something we've seen continue that to help bridge some of that bid ask spread, or frankly, facilitate deals getting done where maybe the cash isn't there. And, and part of that has to do with credit markets a bit, Ben, and their continuing impact on deals. So we're still seeing lenders be more conservative on leverage we are hearing more and more from sponsors that we know that they're ha they're having to go to more than one lender to facilitate you know even kind of modest amounts of debt in a deal and the lenders are just looking to limit exposure so debt financing is is i mean there's still plenty of lenders out there the credit the private credit market has really been an amazing story in general but it's taking longer and, and some of that is pushing out closing deadlines and just making getting deals done, you know, marginally more difficult. So that, that is absolutely out there as well in this current environment that impacts valuations, it impacts deal timing, things along those lines. And for those leverage deals, do sponsors have to put more cash on the table now? Has that changed for, you know, just the debt to equity yeah. mix on, on how they're financing these transactions? 
Yeah, yeah. So that that has definitely changed. The equity component is a little more demanding right now. As you know, there's a period of time where lenders were willing to really lever up, and it was just a matter of pricing, meaning how expensive is is it going to be to do that? And th- and that has changed. Where lenders are saying, look, I, it's not a matter of pricing. It's I, I'm not I'm not taking on that leverage risk with this business profile, and that you know that spans up to, you know, enterprise grade, you know, SaaS with fantastic metrics. I mean, that dynamic exists there and it's even more heightened when you start talking about SMB SaaS and, you know, the retention dynamics that exist there, putting pressure on people's willingness to lend into those businesses. But uh, yes, the, the, the short answer is yes, the kind of debt to equity ratio in deals has shifted because of the lending dynamics. And does that increase, say a private equity sponsor, a buyer, you know, very, you know, they have their thesis, very financially disciplined, which I love as far as their investments, has their discipline increased with more cash in the deal, you know, thinking about now those cash on cash returns, you know, maybe now they've really got to scrutinize that those deals more. And, and you mentioned maybe diligence taking a little bit longer. Do you see any change in discipline? P firm sponsors just sticking to their thesis or is has it ratcheted up a bit? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I, I think across the board, uh, firms that are disciplined have really stuck to being very disciplined and maybe even ratcheted up a little bit more in terms of what is investable and from a private equity standpoint. And part of that has to do with, you know, there's, Free money is gone, right? You can't just lever it up, and uh, you know the rising tide isn't going to float all boats anymore. So the quality of the assets they're investing in has to be better. The thesis going forward has to be stronger, and the underlying metrics of the business, frankly, need to be better. And what comes with that also is there is, you know, this is in some respects backing away from risk. Then is that. You know, the size of the business needs to be a little bit different for some groups. You know, the groups that said, hey, five of ARR, sure, as long as it's got a path to 10, willing to take a look, that's a good sweet spot for us. You know, maybe those people are now eight uh, or 10, and the people who are at 10 or at 15, and the people who are at 15 or at 20 or 25. And, you know, all of that impacts, I think we've seen a ratchet on valuation just in terms of what is going to command the double digit multiple that everyone got so you know so used to back in 2021 you know the businesses that are achieving those sorts of multiples frankly are just they're a little different now than they were in in 2021 so there's a, there's a lot underneath all of that but i think you know for for founders thinking about their business Understanding that the market has shifted a bit in that regard is important just to keep in mind as you think about when to go to market, how to go to market, and what to expect out of a, a process. And and we'll we'll circle around towards the end with one of my favorite questions. Now, at least in this market, you know, what does it take for a 10x, you know, multiple? Yeah. Uh, and wh- how do we get there for founders? Sure. So earlier in the year, of course, we talked probably more of a buyer market. You know, and now where is that buyer or seller market in between still a buyer market? So I think I think actually it's it's relatively balanced right now. Again, just kind of it feels like we've gotten to a little bit of an equilibrium. So it's not strongly favoring uh, one group or the other. I think there was 2021 was obviously very seller friendly. And then I think that inverted a bit. And now I think we're getting back to a much more sort of level playing field. So great companies, Ben, and, and we will get to this. Um, mm-hmm. You're still getting really nice multiples. I mean, the really great businesses, double digit multiples are absolutely still out there. And good companies are getting fair multiples. But, you know, good companies aren't getting eight, nine, 10, 11 times. They're getting five to eight times. And where you fall in that range is going to be dependent on the elements of your business as it is today and what it looks like going forward. So, you know, that, that I think is very healthy. What comes with, I think, a more balanced market is, you know, we have had a change in how diligence is done, right? Diligence is taking 
longer. It's not the 2021 when everyone just said, we'll do the bare minimum to get this thing done. And, you know, so that means deals are taking a bit longer to close. Deeper diligence is taking place. So quality of earnings, third-party tech due diligence, that's been the standard for years. That's still happening. That level of scrutiny, I wouldn't say has changed dramatically. Maybe there's a little bit more pressure on some of those. We're seeing folks actually spend spend more time on what we would consider kind of like fundamental business and operating metrics. So the stuff that you are, you know, so skilled at, at training people on and getting people to think really thoughtfully about, you know, your SaaS KPIs, those are under pressure, right? How are you calculating? Is it being done correctly? The cohorting, it's kind of all gone like one layer deeper, right? It was always mm-hmm. pretty rigorous, but now it's kind of like rigorous plus plus one, you know, and then we're seeing more people spend time on things like cost synergies, right? That don't impact the growth of the business because profitability is so important, right? So can we, you know, it's like little things like, can we improve hosting costs? Can we streamline operational elements of the business or get smarter about vendor selection and services being used? We're fielding more calls along those lines in deals, including, you know, do we need an office, right? It's just a question because the world is definitely different on the work from home front. So on the diligence side, Jim, so before high flying times, maybe, all right, we promise a one month close, let's get this deal done. What can a founder expect when they sign that term sheet? Yeah, they go all in on diligence. What are we looking at? Two months, three months, four months? Yeah, so when when things were really humming in 21, I mean, we were talking about signing LOIs and closing deals and, you know, and signing agreements in less than two weeks. I'm sure that there are instances in which that is happening, but that's not the norm. And and nor was it happening every single deal in 21, but you could do it because people would close that quickly. Now, I think it's safe for people to think, you know, is 30 days fast? Yeah, it's fast. Is it going to happen in every deal? No, I would, if you just put your, you know, what should I be thinking about timing hat on? I think 60 days is probably a safe assumption. And it might go longer than that, depending on uh, the level of diligence that's being done. And I think what we've also got right now, Ben, is a little bit, you know, in some years we have real urgency in the market to close things by year end, or there are just outside pressures that are that cause people to move more quickly for various reasons. It feels like, generally speaking, there's a lack of urgency right now on the buyer front. And, and that dictates a little bit, you know, and in some instances, quite a bit of time to close, right? So, you know, on our end, how we mitigate some of that, uh, and you know this well, is trying to get parties to do as much work as they possibly can before we get to post LOI. And what I would say is there groups are still willing to do third-party due diligence. And what I mean by that for, for folks listening is hire a quality of earnings firm, get a tech due diligence firm in before LOI. And that will front run quite a bit of timing post LOI in terms of due diligence, but that is that is less frequent, significantly less frequent than it was, which means the post LOI period gets pushed out. But we continue to lean on people to do that and turn auction draft purchase agreements and things of that nature. But the resistance to those things from the, the buyer side, you know, is, has strengthened considerably in terms of what they're willing to do before they know they've got it under LOI. So that's just a, maybe a market dynamic that's a little bit different that people should be ready to to see that in a process. Yeah, yeah, it's good to understand that. And so we talked about valuations and maybe median 5X, good companies 5 to 8X. Of course, it can go higher. It can go lower as well. Where do we, and I think I know the answer, but where do we see trends going forward with valuations? In in the near term, let's just talk the next six to 12 months. Yeah, so my gut, and look, this market has been, frankly, Ben, it's been, it's been a little elusive in terms of, I think people starting back in Q1 of last year, everyone had an optimistic view of when things were gonna fire back up. And every kind of two months it was, well, we think it's coming, we think the volume's coming, we think valuation's coming. And then there was this idea that there was gonna be a huge post-Labor Day push, things of that nature. 
my after going through these conversations for a year, you know, my gut is that the current sort of status quo will continue and we're not going to see a giant bounce back uh, on multiples. I think we might see a little bit of creep up as maybe volume improves a little bit. And, and one thing that we've seen on the volume front, Ben, just anecdotally, is people have said, look, and when I say volume, I mean deals coming to market. So not necessarily deals getting done, but deals coming to market. That the feedback has been uh, primarily deal volume is pretty steady. And that's a good thing. We haven't had a tidal wave of, of deals, but it hasn't trickled down to nothing again either. What is also consistent is a lot of that deal volume is kind of okay businesses or businesses that are struggling to grow or struggling to get profitable. So there's a quality component to, I think, what you're seeing in the, in the closed deal volume, but also in the multiples associated with those closed deals, where when, when good or great businesses start coming to market in more volume, I think you would begin to see some of the multiple data creep up as better assets are getting acquired. And, and that gets into what we've seen on the private equity front, Ben, and we've talked about this, which is add-on activity has been the primary way that sponsors have been spending money. That's how they're keeping busy. And part of that is because platforms require bigger, higher quality assets. And there just haven't been a ton of platform opportunities out in the market. So if you're going to deploy capital and, and private equity has an enormous amount of capital to deploy, you got to find ways to do it. And being smart about add-ons is, is the way we've seen sponsors you know, stay active and build value in their portfolio while working through a, you know, what continues to be a, a strange period from a platform opportunity perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to talk a little bit about platforms add-ons a little bit later. But, you know, founders, if you're list, if you're driving right now, pull over because I, I love this question that's coming up is, so in a deal, what ARR number should founders ask for? And I think this has changed over time where we think about, well, trailing 12 months of recurring revenue, or maybe it's our ARR as of today. We look at our SaaS P&L, we take that MRR times 12, and that's our exit ARR currently, or maybe forward ARR, or maybe car and committed annual recurring revenue. So yep. it, I don't know if there are any norms here, Jim, but what should founders ask for? And what are you seeing as that, that anchor valuation point in deals? Yeah. So what I would say is what we are almost always or always asking for is people to look forward in terms of when we go out and we're talking to sponsors or strategic acquirers, you know, it's not, not, you're not looking at, you know, certainly not LTM like recognized revenue for a SaaS business. Certainly not. Here's our current ARR, which, you know, may or may not reflect itself in your gap financials due to things like, you know, implementation timing and contracted ARR that's not in the, you know, on the books yet. We are almost always pointing people towards, you know, if we can, you know, six, 12 months forward. And if there's committed ARR that's not hitting the books yet, that absolutely gets into how we position the business. And, and there's positioning that that's what we expect. And then there's what do you get credit for, right? And, and what you get credit for really depends on all the stuff that, that you, know, you are teaching founders to pay attention to, which is, look, if you want kind of 12 months forward ARR credit, you, and you're pointing people to that in your deal, and you're saying, look, if you're going to acquire me or we're going to do a majority recap, I expect you to look at that number. And that's the number I expect you to multiply by what whatever you're comfortable with. Those are my expectations. You got to have really, really strong metrics to back it up. If you've got suboptimal retention, no one's giving you credit for a year forward, right? If your pipeline isn't going to support that growth, um, you're never going to get credit. So how much credit you get pointing people forward depends on the underlying quality of your business. And those, I, mean, I think everyone knows you're kind of best in class on, you know, you want to be certainly north of 90% logo retention, preferably 95% plus, 110% uh, plus on your net. 
you know, well into, into the 90s on your gross. You know, all of that has been super scrutinized and continues to be. And, you know, I think there was a period of time there where there was some squishiness and how are you calculating things? I think all of that's been ironed out. You know, people's, it, it's just, if you want big multiples, you got to have all the, all the backup to support why people should get comfortable looking forward. Yeah, and I, I love that because, you know, of course, you're speaking my language now, and actually we're getting a little bit more advanced here under the hood where if founders are going to ask for forward ARR or a car number, you know, and that applies, I'd say, especially if I had a nice backlog that's waiting to be implemented or I had a nice pipeline, all these closed one deals that we know are going to come to fruition that we're going to argue for that forward ARR. But like you said, We've got to have the metrics to back it up. So we've got to have good gross revenue retention because who cares if I can these deals, but I've got 65% gross logo retention, for yeah. example, right? Yeah. You know, so it's like, yeah, you're not going to get credit for that because still the the operations underneath, you know, don't support, you know, looking at that forward ARR. So that I love that point. And and especially, you know, I'd say this is applies maybe to more of those if you're targeting mid-market enterprise customers where we've got the backlog, we've got the pipeline, we can really prove out that we're going to hit these forward ARR numbers versus, yep. say, a self-service SaaS that's low price point, high volume could be maybe a little bit harder justification there, I could see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you on this front, Ben, I mean, so that the, the metrics and, and gross revenue retention in particular has you know, maybe supplanted is too strong, but yeah, you know, on the net revenue retention side, people are hyper-focused on how's your gross retention doing. And part of that is shielding from, you know, one or two customers propping you up on the net side, but, you know, you got a real hole in the bucket on the gross side that is maybe reflective of how the product is being adopted and used and how satisfied people are. There's a number of reasons why people are focusing on gross instead of net. And it's all just a kind of anecdotally, you know, I don't get a lot of questions early on in a process. Like if you've got a teaser out or we're just starting to share information, I don't get a whole lot of what's your net revenue retention. The question is what's your gross, you know, if, yeah. if it hasn't been um, shown already, that's the question they ask. So just be a good thing for people to have in mind. And on this, you know, visibility front, what we've also seen is a whole lot more pressure on pipeline and forecast due diligence. So, and this is anecdotal too, but we're seeing it mm -hmm. in some of our, our public data too. I'm hearing from more and more sponsors that they are seeing they're in, within their portfolio, but also in the companies they are taking a look at that people are missing their numbers. And mm -hmm. not, not terribly, but they're missing from the top line and they're missing on profitability, which is something they haven't really seen in mass in quite some time. And, and so line to validate is the forecast going to come to fruition? And part of that is what they're seeing in their own businesses. If you're a sponsor and you're seeing your pipeline push out, and you're seeing buying decisions get delayed or budget dollars get really tight, you know, they're saying, well, if we're seeing that, they're probably seeing it. Let's get to the bottom of it. We see this in our public concept. So in January of 23 or thereabouts, our SAS index had an LTM growth rate of 23%. As of September, I think that number is, you know, 16 or 17%. And the forward expectation is 12%. And that, that's across like 75 SaaS businesses, right? So there is some slowing of growth and sponsors and, and strategic acquirers are digging in on the pipeline front to validate, you know, is your report, you're going to hit your forecast, right? In addition to, you got to have great retention metrics. Yeah, definitely. And then backing up the gross revenue retention, you know, when I was teaching SaaS metrics to a PE firm, they asked me, hey, Ben, what, do you, what if you could only pick one between gross revenue retention and net revenue retention, what would it be? And I go with gross revenue retention because I feel like that is the true health of your recurring revenue. Yep. And they seem to agree with that, that PE yep. firm, that GR is paramount to get that right. And that because right, net revenue retention, it's really two stories in one, which I teach in my metrics course. And we, we, we I could talk forever on this, but yeah, I think GR important metric and it's getting back to those fundamentals. You know, do you have an MR schedule in place? Is that data good? Is it consistent? Can we rely on that? Because that's what you're going to hand over to these analysts who are going to slice and dice your data. And you said, yeah. right, diligence standards higher. 
not only like, hey, what's my overall retention, but now looking at renewal rates, why was that monthly renewal rate lower than these other months? Like picking yeah. out specific months. And that's where you really have to know your data, have the numbers calculated. So you're prepared for those discussions. And Jim, thinking about metrics and when we get into these discussions, what, you know, we talked about gross revenue retention, obviously an important one. We talked about pipeline. We talked about that importance of the forecast and the dance we play with that and due diligence of just, you know, optimistic, but not over optimistic where we don't hit. And then they yeah. pull that forecast out and say, hey, founder, you know, you said this and now we're 12 months post acquisition. You know, this is yeah. not what we expected, which we don't want to get into. So what other metrics should we consider as a founder when we're going into due diligence or looking at an exit? So the other metric that's getting a lot of scrutiny about is just your profitability. I, I think, you know, and that's a simple metric. You know, there's nothing overly complicated about that. But gross margin, EBITDA margin, paying attention to how you're trending matters. And a lot of this, and, and you can put this into this general bucket, Ben, rule of 40. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this year that you know people are focused on rule of 40, rule of 40, rule of 40. It, it kind of bubbled up and then it, it kind of went away during the frothiness. And but now it's you know it's really back. And but the composition of what makes up a great rule of 40, you know, is different. I think now people go, hey, you got a 2020 business. I want to look at that. You got a 3010 business. I like that one. You got a 70 negative 30 business. I talk to me when you get that negative 30 a lot closer to you know negative 10 on a path to zero, right? Because we yeah. want EBITDA positive, cash flow positive. And look, there are still plenty of investors who will put money into cash burning businesses, but the the story on how you how you get to cash flow positive has got to be really good. You know, I mean, people are just the bar there is absolutely heightened. But people appreciate profitability and the rule of 40, I think, mix in terms of what's really attractive has shifted a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to be growing, right? But you also, you got to be profitable and there's not this trade-off and this is long since died. The growth at all costs model that, you know, led to a lot of great valuations, but ultimately led to a lot of ruin for some businesses, you know, that's out the door um, for the most part. Yeah. And I love that because I say, you know, as a CFO, of course, financial discipline never goes out of style, you know, regardless Absolutely. of the market, you well know, said. and, and, and also the fundamentals never go out of style because I read a lot of blogs and newsletters and you'll see the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year, you know, and well-respected blogs where they were saying growth matters, rule of 40 is dead don't care about profitability, you know, coming from well-respected firms, but as the flavor of the year, you're just caught up, you know, in that, that, that scenario, that environment and founders, it's like, we can't forget about those fundamentals. We uh -huh. never yeah. straight, you know, profitability, gross margin, margins by revenue stream, our EBITDA margin, our OPEX profile, rule of 40, of course. And I was going to ask profit or growth, but you answer that. It sounds like, you know, we're looking for nice balance still, even yet, you know, later in the year that, like you said, when you said, a rule of 40 business that's 2020. So 20% growth, 20% profit. Yeah, that's really attractive. There's a nice business model underlying that rule of yeah. 40 number. So again, looking at all those metrics and contexts, you know, and, and what is it saying? What's working? What's not working in their business? Because I know we've talked about this in the past. Buyers don't expect a perfect business, right? You know, yeah. there's usually something to work on. So don't, you know, fret that, oh my gosh, I've got a couple metrics that are just aren't there. You know, but yeah, it's it's rare to find perfection across the board. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we've we've never had a perfect client, you know, from a financial and metric standpoint. But paying attention to it is hyper important. Always has been, but I think more so now. And it just boils down, Ben, to fundamentally having a sound business and understanding it. And if you can communicate that to buyers and investors, you're going to build a lot of confidence and conviction in them get them to lean in. Yeah. And one question that I, I didn't put on the agenda today, but it just sure. comes up so much in my coaching sessions with, with SaaS clients who are anywhere from a couple million to a hundred million ARR is what is your true business model? Because we know now there's so many different revenue streams that can be in SaaS. 
pure subscription, variable revenue that could be usage, processes, you know, consumption, transaction, whatever, professional services, managed services, hardware. And sometimes I I talk to these SaaS founders and we look at their PLs and they're trying to explain the model. And it's like I just don't quite get their business model. Yeah. You know, as revenue goes up, you know, what happens in COGS? Are there people involved? Is this tech, you know, serve, you know, tech-enabled services? You know, so tell me about that because you know, when I look and teach you know SaaS metrics and how to set up your SaaS PL, one for us to operate our business, but also to make these numbers easily consumable for investors, for boards, yeah. for potential investors. So how important is that business model understanding so they can, you know, one, set up the numbers correctly and then easily convey that to a potential yeah. investor because you can get just bogged down so fast. Like what what is really going on here? Do you yeah. is this a people powered business, which I or is this a product powered business? Yeah, it's an awesome question. And you're right to get people thinking about this really early. There's nothing and look, we we talk to a lot of early stage businesses, Ben, as you know, we we and, and these are not clients, these are just people we're helping think through things strategically. And, and we run into this exact dynamic all the time, which is if we get into your financial statements and we're scratching our head about how you're doing business and what the revenue model is and what's profitability and how does it scale, you can be really sure that anyone who's looking to buy or invest in your business is going to be befuddled as well. And so we spend a lot of time, and this is something we look for early on clean delineation of not only business models. So how can you articulately explain to people succinctly what you do, how you do it, how you charge for it? And what those revenue streams are. And then we're the next layer is what's the gross margin at those? How do you support those revenue streams, basically? Right. And this is where you get into like, is it a tech enabled service? Is it really SaaS subscription? You know, is it is it hardware? Are you getting a spiff by reselling someone else's stuff? What does this look like? So we really encourage people to think, and this is where they need folks like you to sometimes help scrub in is. It show us gross margin by business line. So we actually understand the underlying, you know, just what this is, right? If I look at a SaaS subscription line and it looks like it's 40% gross margin, I scratch my head, right? And so if, if you can get that ironed out, show it cleanly, show it at the gross margin level, that alone will help people understand your business model, right? really cleanly. And then you can connect those line items to the products, services, solutions you're offering really, really cleanly. And that helps too, right? So you can almost take, you know, take your overview of your solutions and map it back to the PL and people can go, okay, I get all the things you're doing on an outward facing marketing document that says, here's my business, here's what I do. I see how that translates to revenue. I see how that revenue is supported. Got it. And then you start to go, okay, well, I see how this can scale, right? And if you can paint that picture, I think you've won an early battle. Yeah, because we, I mean, we know it's not all about the numbers, but numbers are so important in some of the companies that I've helped. Well, are you a 50% gross margin business? Yeah. Or are you 80? You know, and, and we're not sure yet. We've got to get COGS versus OPEX figured out. And, and yeah. of course, has to be nailed down, has to be nailed down before you go to market talking to investors or whatever you're doing yeah. or just casual conversations where maybe they, hey, send me your financials. Well, I don't want to then change it and say, well, sorry, we thought we were 80%. We're actually 50%, you know, and that just, yeah, we, we don't want to be there. So, so yeah, important exactly. to get that, that nailed down and what is your true financial profile. So circling back on platform versus add-ons, we know less risk probably for buyers on the add-on space. So where are we right now versus, you know, for, for buyers looking at platforms, you know, and, and if you could explain that gym platform versus add-ons, sure. and then is there a certain revenue level that makes you platform versus add-on and, or is yeah. it, is it really more of a, like what features you offer? So I asked a lot of questions there, but yeah, yeah let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So, so in terms of, and let me know if this is not what you asked, but it's just in terms of how PE is, you know, staying busy. They're definitely still more active on the add-on front as opposed to the platform front. That that has been a year plus of reality. And 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 look, add-ons will will always be more prevalent than platform deals by by nature. But I think the balance is swayed dramatically towards add-ons, uh, you know, over the last twelve or eighteen months. And I think that will probably continue until better assets come to market. When we think about well, what are you talking about? Add-ons versus platforms. 
right? So an add-on acquisition would be a, a business that is acquired by a platform business. So the platform business, as the name implies, is the business that underlies a fundamental thesis that the private equity firm has. It's, it is the mothership, so to speak, and then all the add-ons are acquired underneath and you're scaling the platform via add-ons, right? So there's got to be strategic fit for all the add-ons and things of that nature. But that's the difference is the platform is mothership and the add-ons are, are the, the, as you might expect, the additions to the mothership from an M&A perspective. What, you know, private equity's mindset around a platform is it's got to be big enough to kind of warrant jumping into the thesis. And like, this is the bet we're going to make here. It's got to be a, a bigger business, a super high quality business. One that we've, It's got a giant TAM and validates all the things that we've been thinking about in the background. We've got a, or we've got a playbook for it. We've owned a business like this before. It's lower risk because of its scale. It's usually more sophisticated because of its scale. It might be a sponsor to sponsor trade. But generally speaking, I would think of a platform as a bigger, more sophisticated, scaled business that the private equity firm feels really confident about going forward. And look, the feature functionality set may play into what's a platform and what's not, but but underlying all of that then is there's got to be a really strong belief that they can use this vehicle to execute a playbook uh, on a market thesis or otherwise and, and if they can find that business, they'll go after it because that's kind of the, that's the beachhead, right? That That's how you get started um, with all your add-on activity. You got to have something to add stuff onto. So, you know, I think about, and this, this varies, you know, it depends on where you are in the market, but most of the folks we're talking to on a platform side, really mid-market sponsors, 15, 20, 25 million of ARR is where a lot of a lot of people are starting. You know, I think that that was 10 for a while, and it is still 10 for some firms. But you do have to have some scale in order to really make sense as a platform for a lot of these firms. Now, there are plenty of firms who will do platforms 5, 8, 10, 12. They're out there. But if you think about the market more broadly, I think we've kind of found our way into 15, 20 million of ARR being where the comfort level begins. And that's just, you know, there's less risk there. It's an established business. It's easier to execute the thesis, right? And then add-ons can really be any size, right? That's really feature functionality fit, vertical market fit, things like that, where that becomes really the focus of the investment thesis for the add-ons. Yeah, appreciate that insight. That that really helps. And founders, really, that's a question you should I ask the buyers, hey, am I a platform or add-on buy? And that could dictate like how the conversations go. So it's yeah. it's it's good to know that going in. And Jim, so now one of my favorite questions, you know, I think we talked about this before, you know, 10x ARR. We've talked valuations generally, yeah. and we know getting into those double digits is possible because again, if you have a great business, right, you're gonna attract some buyers to it. So for founders listening, you know, what does it take to get to that 10x ARR roughly around one probably revenue size dictates that a bit and then metrics. So give us a little insight on, on how we can push our valuation up to 10x. Yeah. So I think for a while getting to 10x was just a factor of the market. Then in 2021, there were lots of businesses getting to 10X. And I, I think it, it would just be how competitive can you make the process and how mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And look, that plays into it, certainly. But I do think there has been a scaling, you know, the hurdle for how you get there is scaled up. And, you know, maybe early in the year, I, I would have said, hey, you got to be at least 10. You know, I think that's still definitely the case. But I think that number is probably creeping up to 15 or so. And look, there are always exceptions to the rule. So people need to kind of take this as, you know, general market commentary, but you're going to need to be double digit ARR growing, you know, 40, 50% and profitable or break even with absolutely best in class metrics. And, and you got to have a really good team right? I mean, you're really asking for people in this market to pay up for a business. So you just have to be an absolutely A++ asset or A-plus asset, however you want to think about it. 
And if you are, that market is absolutely out there in terms of there are deals, you know, we hear about them taking place. We participate in those deals and we just know that what it takes to get there is, is a higher bar than what it was 18 months ago or two years ago. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with scale and stability and growth rate and profitability now meeting these higher levels at the investment committee or at the corp dev and board level of your strategic saying, hey, if we're going to pay for that, we got to be 100% sure that this thing is a home run, right? Mm -hmm. That is big time paying up in a, in a different environment than 2021. Yeah, but that, that's where we've got to get our numbers right and founders implement my five pillar SaaS metrics framework to help with that. So it sounds like, Jim, 10 million to 15 million ARR, nice growth rates, 40 to 50%, definitely not huge negative EBITDA margins, but we need break even or above, you know, and of course, great metrics. So that that seems pretty consistent with before. And we, and, you know, of course, there's a lot of noise going on, not sure where things are going. But again, same, probably same story there, Jim, is, even from earlier this year, if you have a good business, if you have a best in class business, you can still find great buyers, great error valuations. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely true. And and you know, just to be clear for folks, it's not saying if you're 10 million AR growing 50%, you're gonna get double digit. I think that is literally the price of entry to even get into a realm where that might be possible for your business. And then it's gonna depend on who you're talking to, what the fit is. And all the other elements of your business that are unique, you know, to your business. And uh, the eye, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's always the case. But I think particularly now, as you start talking about how do we get from, you know, seven, eight, nine times to 10, 11, 12 times uh, on the ARR front, there's a lot of, there's a lot that gets into that. But you got to start with a scaled, growing, really fundamentally sound business to even have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. In in we're running out of time here, so only you know a few more questions. But on the flip side of this, thinking about this, you know, I talked to a ton of SaaS founders who are in that yeah. two to three, maybe four million AR range, yeah. and somewhere they've been in business for a while, really slow growth or no growth. You know, maybe their break even profitability, maybe not great gross profit. Where you know where do we think valuations on that side? Where sometimes they're just like, hey, I'm I'm ready to exit. I've been trying to grow this business. I've just kind of you know, burnt out, you know, and, and they've say they've, they've built a 3 million AR business. That's not really grow, you know, slow growth, not the great financial, great, greatest financial profile. What valuation are we looking at there? If they're, if they just want to pull the plug, get out of there, is that say a three X, you know, what's the lower range here? Yeah. So what I would say about businesses and, and look, there are a fair number of those businesses right now and they, they're good they're fine businesses. They're kind of steady eddy businesses, but they're not growing like a rocket ship. You know, maybe people are tired. There's a market for those businesses, but it is, you know, I think of those businesses as trading at three, four, maybe five times, depending on the fit. And those are good, you know, potential add-on deals for sponsor-backed businesses where, hey, you know, you want to you wanna transition, we can help you do that. We'll pay you a fair number. You can move on. You know, maybe you're here for a little bit to help with the transition, but there's a market for those businesses. Frankly, that has been not an insignificant amount of the add-on activity that's been out there is people looking to transition or maybe right now that, you know, with the rate environment and kind of our macro uh, elements the last uh, two years or so, that it's just the right time, right? To move on from the business and put it into someone else's hands. So those deals are getting done, but I think you do just kind of need to go into that eyes wide open around receptivity to your business in the market, scale at that, you know, kind of two, three million of ARR. There's going to be a lot of people that just go, hey, it's too small, you know, it's just mm -hmm. too small. So you're going to have a more limited market, but there is a market. And your valuation expectations, just, you know, we always say this, never launch a process unless you're confident, you know, and your advisors are confident that your number is out there. Or you might just be wasting enormous amounts of time, right? And then you got to, you know, then you're in the penalty box for a year because you went out and tried to sell and didn't get it done. And you got to kind of reset and stuff like that. So, but yes, those, those deals get done. There's a market, there's a segment to this of the private equity market. 
that looks at those deals. And those are very good homes for those companies. And there's an opportunity to see those businesses grow beyond kind of their current trajectory. And of course, strategics are always in the mix for those businesses. And that's going to be about product fit, right? Especially if you're subscale, it's got to matter at the product fit level. Okay. Yeah. And thanks for the insight because we love to focus on the high flyers, the the sexy valuations. But again, the, it's good to hear there's still a market. If you kind of slow growth, lower ARR, you know, yeah, deals can get done, you know, maybe just a little bit different. So Jim, we're kind of out of time here. So one last question and I'll put your contact info in the show notes. If anyone has questions you know, yeah. for Jim and wants to reach out to Jim, talk about the current software M&A markets right now, but 2024, Earlier this year, we thought, hey, 2023, just operate your business, maybe sit on the sidelines. 2024 will be the year. Has that thought changed? You know, I, I think from an from a 2024 year perspective, I still think 2024 is going to be a good year. I think it's going to start a little bit later, Ben, than maybe we anticipated. So maybe sometime in the first half we start to see things begin to pick up. Um, or we are seeing just anecdotally, seeing a little bit of pickup and feeling a little bit of pickup, but it's a little bit, right? And I wouldn't necessarily lean into it and say, this is where we're going. I just think, you know, we've gotten more comfortable and hopefully that results in, you know, a snowball rolling into 2024. So I think we're still optimistic about 2024. A lot of people we've talked to this year we are pointing towards 2024, you know, and maybe if it were Q1 2024, maybe it's Q2 or Q3 2024 to get your deal done and get up and running. And a lot of that depends on the trajectory of, of the individual business, but we're still bullish, you know, and certainly long-term, I mean, software is a wonderful place to be as an entrepreneur. Uh, it's always going to be, even in down markets, it's still a good place to be. And there's still a lot of value that you're creating. There's always going to be capital if you've got a good business. So, you know, I would just say, don't rush, right? Do this once, do it right. Figure out what your timing is. Talk to advisors who can help you think through where your business is today. Talk to you about how to get ship shape and figure out when you want to hit the go button, right? And then really commit to it and go in fully, fully dedicated to getting something done. And, you know, that's always our advice. And I think 2024 is maybe where we start to see more of that come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So 2024, we'll see how that plays out. We'll have to have another uh, session early 2024. See Happy if to that do came it. True. Yeah. But Jim, really appreciate your time today. I know we could talk for hours on this. So this is a great overview of the current software M&A markets. Really appreciate your insight and your time today. And yeah, we'll, I think with that, wrap it up right here. And again, in the show notes, I'll put some contact info for, info for Jim. If you'd like to reach out, I have questions about the, the current markets. And uh, yeah, we'll be back maybe in the first, second quarter and see how things are shaping up. Awesome. I'd well, love to do it. And I'll we'll also make our quarterly software to capital markets report available to you, Ben, if you want to put that in the notes, we'll, we'll have that ready in a matter of days. And then everyone can look at the hard data and not listen to my anecdotes, but uh, yeah. um, it's, it's insightful. And I think, and hopefully people yeah. will find it really helpful as they just think about where are we now, where have we been and, and maybe where are we going? So. Yep. Okay. All perfect. Right. We'll share that too. Yeah. A lot of great information in that. And again, appreciate it, Jim. You bet. Thanks, Ben. Good to see you. Tuned.